Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're doing our second Hill briefing on the subject of transparency, trying to provide uh, both nudge, I guess, our federal government to be more transparent and provide them with some information on how they can do so. Uh, we're probably, before it's all said and done, do another uh, Hill briefing or two on the same subject, looking at it from uh, slightly different angles. Uh, for those of you who missed the first Hill briefing on transparency, which was a few weeks ago, it is available at Cato.org in our archived events section, so you can go back and take a look at that. Uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, well, first I'd like to announce the fact that we are live streaming this event in a nod toward transparency. Uh, the whole world could, uh, could tune in at Cato.org to watch this briefing. Uh, so that'll be a factor when we get to the Q&A period, but I'll describe that in a little bit more detail then. Um, what I'll do now is go ahead and introduce our three speakers and uh, let them give their initial presentations, then we'll move to the Q&A phase. Um, first up will be uh, Jim Harper, who works at the Cato Institute as the Director of Information Policy Studies. If you're asking yourself what does that mean to be the Director of Information Policy Studies, I confess I do not know. Uh, he says that he works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, security, and uh, of course today's subject, transparency, and we're just gonna have to take him at his word. He's also an accomplished author. Uh, he has written a book called Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. It's actually a pretty interesting book, available at cato.org as well. Uh, he edits a number of websites, including privacilla.org and washingtonwatch.com, and he holds a JD from UC Hastings College of Law. After Jim, we'll hear from Eric Zimmerman, He's a senior policy analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense. There he works on a number of issues, including transparency, transportation, and earmarks. Uh, prior to joining TCS, he was a program director with the Missoula Institute for Sustainable Transportation. He holds a master's degree uh, in environmental studies from the University of Montana and a bachelor's degree from George Washington University here in Washington. Uh, and then third, we will hear from Craig Jennings. Craig is on his way here. Uh, so apologies for the empty seat currently to my left. Uh, Craig is the director of fiscal, I'm sorry, federal fiscal policy program at OMB Watch. Uh, he's an expert on a number of issues, including federal tr uh, spending transparency and the federal budget process. Uh, he has done a tremendous amount of work on OMB Watch's website, fedspending.org. Um, he holds a uh, bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Austin and a master's degree in public policy from American University. Uh, and with that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to our first speaker, Jim Harper. Thank you, Brandon, and thanks to all of you for being here, for your interest in transparency. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's really important, and there's a lot of talk about it, uh, but not as much progress as there should be. And so um, I'm hoping that the work I've been doing will um, pave the way, put you all in a position as congressional staff uh, to help advance the ball on, on transparency. I, uh, I thought carefully about the things I wanted to say to you, and, and my, my first bullet is, is, is probably the one that's, uh, that enjoys the greatest consensus. Uh, transparency is a good thing. Uh, everybody does agree on that, and uh, we're joined by Craig. Come on up, Craig. Uh, everybody does, does agree on that, and, and I think President Obama, during his campaign for the presidency, uh, held that issue up. Uh, he got a, a great deal of applause on the campaign trail for it, and it's something that Republicans also want to have. Uh, there's been a, a healthy consensus that, is, that has maintained itself on the Hill and in the executive branch that we all want transparency. It hasn't broken down into partisanship. 
hasn't become politicized, and that's very important, and it's, a, it's important for the progress on the issue to maintain that. So I'm delighted to work with uh, groups across the spectrum on this, and we're represented by, by people who vary uh, in their position on the ideological spectrum. Uh, but we're all working together, and that's, and that's, that's key. Now, despite that consensus, uh, transparency hasn't progressed as we might have imagined it would uh, three years ago, for example, when, when President Obama came into office. Uh, there has been lots of effort in the administration. There's been effort on Capitol Hill, but we haven't seen the kind of progress that I think we, we um, hoped for uh, back then. My take on it, starting about a year ago, uh, was that perhaps the transparency community hadn't communicated well enough to the government what we wanted in terms of transparency. Uh, and so I've spent a good deal of time examining what creates transparency so that we can have sp a specific ask of the government. What do we want? And that's the, the, the material that you, that you picked up on your way in and the, the report cards that you see on either side of me here uh, reflect something of an ask. Uh, I put together a paper uh, called Publication Practices for Transparent Government. Uh, colleagues of mine, um, you know, Cato's a libertarian think tank, colleagues of mine correctly noted that it's kind of just a good government paper. And it's also kind of just technical mumbo jumbo. But what it tries to do is translate between one world, the public policy world, and another world, the data world. So it's probably a difficult read and a challenging read for people in both of those communities because I'm speaking in a, lang in a language half of which re reflects a different community. Uh, hopefully by reading it and by studying these issues uh, along with me, you all will be better positioned to talk about transparency, to translate the public policy world uh, into, into data that the technical world can use. The four practices, publication practices that I talk about in the paper are authority, availability, machine discoverability, and machine readability. I won't go into too much detail about these, but authority is just the idea that people know where to go. There is an authoritative source for data. Availability means it's there. It's there all the time. It's complete. It's not well, behind a paywall or it's not subject to proprietary controls, that kind of thing. Machine discoverability is when we really start to think about the Internet. Um, is it structured? Is it placed on the Internet in a way that computers can find it? Now, there's, a, there's a set of protocols, languages, if you will, uh, that people use in the technical world to indicate where things are and data needs to be placed where it can be found. People know to look there. Computers know to look there, and computers can find things. Machine readability is where, where the rubber really hits the road on this. That's the idea of data that is structured so that its meaning can be brought out using computing. Uh, semantic richness, if you will. Uh, the structure of data is what enables uh, computers to use it, use it well. And so the, the biggest, most important part of transparent data publication is machine readability. To try to illustrate what that is for folks who aren't terribly familiar with it, um, think about the World Wide Web. Okay, the World Wide Web exists because they came up with a way to structure data that everyone can use. Uh, that's called hypertext markup language or HTML. At the beginning of every, every URL you see HTTP, that's the hypertext transfer protocol. That's the language, that's essentially the structure that people use to communicate. And so the World Wide Web made the internet blow up because it structured data correctly. Structured text and the presentation of text, it structured uh, pictures and how they're placed, um, video, sound, all these things are, are structured consistent with this language, uh, HTML. Uh, because it's structured this way, it's searchable, so you have search engines that help you find things, and it's very, very usable compared to data that isn't structured. 
So think about the World Wide Web and how easy it is to find things, to pull up a picture, to search for a word, et cetera, et cetera. And especially this week, you might think you want to do something like that with, say, appropriations bills. What if you could, what if you could pull up an appropriations bill and find every appropriation or every reference to a particular agency? Uh, what if you wanted to search all the bills introduced in a given Congress for every budget authority going to the Department of Labor or a subset of the Department of Labor? You should be able to do that because bills should be structured that way. Well, so we worked on the legislative process and the, the grades that we put out in September are on this, on this sheet over here uh, to my left and you were able to pick it up outside. Folks online, there's a uh, there's a uh, blog post up at Cato at Liberty.org that has links to these things as well. Um, for the last couple of months, we've been working on modeling as data the budget appropriations and spending processes, and that's what you see over here. Remember I said text in its presentation, images, video, sounds in HTML? The, the items you see in the, su in the subject column over there, agencies, bureaus, programs, projects, budget documents, budget authority, those are parallels to, to the different things that you might find on the World Wide Web. These are the pieces of, of data that need to be structured distinctly so that computers can interpret them. And what we've done is go through with, a, with a, 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 a large number of participants and examine how well these things are published. And I uh, regret to tell, inform you that the grades are not terribly good. I, uh, I, I suppose I was generous in giving incompletes rather than Fs, but some folks said I should just go ahead and give Fs to many, to many of these things. At the top, we have agencies. Fascinating, scary, weird. There is no machine-readable list of federal agencies. There's no org chart for the federal government yet. Now, we should, have, we should, we should, have, that, we should have had that a long time ago, and it's certainly something that's easy to do. So, so this is an area where I gave an incomplete to be nice, but it might should have been an F. Likewise, bureaus, the next layer down in the agency structure, um, those are not cataloged in a machine-readable way anywhere uh, that we know of. Programs, projects, similarly, similarly, there's just no information about there in machine-readable form. These are the simple starting building blocks for oversight, and they're not yet online in that machine-readable form that we look for. I won't go through all these details, but, uh, but uh, the blog post that I put up today, and I encourage you when you get back to your offices to look at that on the Cato at Liberty blog, uh, it goes through this in much more detail. And for those people who aren't terribly familiar with the process, uh, it's a decent summary of how budgeting, appropriating, and spending works for audiences, especially online out in the land, who, uh, who don't understand these processes intimately. I will say that to model, to model these processes as data, uh, we, had to, we had to fudge some things because the federal government's spending processes are very complex, very ornate, and very arcane. So in some sense, the model that we've, we've created is um, prescriptive when it's, and not as much descriptive. You try to be descriptive of the things that work and make sense, and from time to time, we're prescriptive where certain practices are going to have to go away if they're going to be transparent. So um, those are really far down in the weeds, but some people will look at this and they'll say, well, that's not, not how it works. And in fact, some, in some cases, we haven't described how it works, but we've described where, how it probably has to work in order for these practices to truly be made transparent for the benefit of the American people. Uh, it's, it's certainly incumbent on me to thank 
folks that have participated uh, in this process with us, particularly in this, on, on this part of the overall project, uh, Caitlin Lee at the Sunlight Foundation uh, is, a, is a guru on this, on this type of stuff. Becky Swager at the uh, National Priorities Project up in Massachusetts has been a, a real aid. I mean, Craig Jennings, who you'll hear from a little bit later, has also been actively participating with us. Uh, those are three names among many who've participated in not only the earlier, earlier part, but this part, and I'm sure we'll have more people. I do maintain an email list. It's relatively low, uh, relatively low bandwidth on this. So, so anybody who wants to be on that list and see this progress as we go forward, I'd be happy to get your email. You can email me, jharper at cato.org, in order to get more information and stay tuned on, on what we're doing. What we will be doing uh, is returning to this, these matters in the, in the some, late summer or fall uh, during election season to rate again how well Congress and how well the administration are publishing things. I think it's important to continue talking about transparency during the next, next election. Uh, we're well positioned for a little bit of uh, push and pull politically on transparency because we do have a, a Republican Congress and a, and a Democratic uh, uh, president. And the two of them, I think, uh, would do well to uh, get in a little competition. Who can be the most transparent? I think the, the president the administration can start by publishing that org chart. Uh, the Congress can do a lot. In fact, the Congress could publish uh, in a machine-readable way its membership and committees and committee membership, the basic building blocks of oversight so that we in the public can start to use that information, start to do computer-aided oversight of government, which is incumbent upon us. Uh, it's not mentioned in the Constitution, but it's essentially required of any democratic government to have public oversight. And we can use computing to do that better if we get access to the data. That's the effort we're trying to do here. So with that, I'll, I'll take my leave and we'll hear from Eric. Thank you. I appreciate the Cato Institute having us here today to talk about some of our experiences uh, with data and data availability. Um, I thought I'd start, uh, if, if you know of my organization, Taxpayers for Common Sense, is a good chance that you know of us through our work on, on earmarks. Um, started back with the last transportation bill reauthorization. We saw an opportunity and a need to put forward a comprehensive list of the earmarks that were in the bill, uh, something that, that to that point, at least in anything near real time, wasn't occurring. And then we segued that into doing appropriations bills and, and other bills as we went along. Uh, and uh, primarily, we're, we're a budget group. We talk about spending. We're not really a transparency group. But data and the availability of data is something that's crucial and underlies the work that, that we do. And really, as a taxpayer, as, as a group advocating for taxpayers, we find it's, it's crucial for taxpayers to, to have access to how their government operates, to the, the information that underlies everything that happens in this town uh, as, as a crucial piece so they can see for themselves how it's happening. Uh, so I think that's where that's, we kind of come at it from, from those angles. And I thought it would be interesting to just flesh out a little bit some of the ideas that, that Jim discussed and how they sort of how the rubber sort of meets the road on, on some of these data issues. And uh, I'm actually going to going to uh, echo uh, and encourage folks to read the paper that, that Jim referenced. It's a it's a very accessible and readable piece. And I'm actually going to wind some of what I'm talking about around those transparent data practices that are that underlie this effort and, uh, and sort of lie at the heart of that paper. Um, so starting with the authoritative sourcing, uh, the idea being that data needs to come from authoritative source so it's trusted and that almost always that authoritative source is going to be the entity that creates or first captures the data, in this case often Congress, uh, especially with earmarks of course. And that if that, if that responsibility is delegated, that uh, 
that the entity be recognized as the entity that's been delegated with that power. Well, I can say with earmarks, none of that was the case uh, in, in, for us. Um, we were neither the authoritative source, nor did we have any delegation in order to be the authoritative source. But we did see that need uh, to have as close to real-time data as, uh, as possible, and, and therefore we sort of took the authority and uh, made ourselves the authoritative source. But ultimately, this isn't the way that it, it should be done. We, we really never wanted to be in the earmark business. We didn't want to be the authoritative source. We don't want to be the authoritative source. And uh, what we hope is that is that through processes like these, Congress takes back that, that authority and, and becomes the authoritative source itself. Um, so of course, with the earmark moratorium, they sort of did put us out of the earmark business, but not because they came to religion on, you know, on, on making these things transparent, but simply because they stopped including earmarks in most of the bills. Um, but there were some glimmers of hope pre-moratorium, and this, this gave us some, some hope that, in fact, Congress is starting to understand some of these issues. First, we'd have been approached uh, by Representative Oberstar's Transportation Committee, or then, then Representative Oberstar, and, and they were putting together and did release for a short time uh, a comprehensive database looking back uh, over several years of all of the earmarks that were requested and that were funded uh, in all of the committee in all of the agencies that they were responsible for. So that was a very interesting undertaking and one that that I think was uh, was a positive step. Uh, and then of course Senator Colburn's bill, which uh, though now some, somewhat academic because of, at least temporarily because of the moratorium. Uh, he was putting together a bill that would have done much of the work of transparency uh, on earmarks specifically, uh, laying out a great deal of detail of, of what members were requesting and what had been funded. Um, so the second data practice uh, is availability, which as Jim mentioned includes making data that's permanent, uh, once it's up, it stays up, that it's stable, you know where to go to find it, and that it's complete, it's, it's as comprehensive as possible. And in a town where data and information is so vital and so crucial, uh, uh, it seems that, that there's a bit of hoarding that goes on in this town. And people are reluctant to, to let that data out. And we around the office kind of think about it as the sort of mushroom theory of governing, the idea of being that you put them in a dark room and then feed them manure, although the word's not actually manure. Um, and I think what's important here is what we envision, and I think what we'd really like to see is an opportunity for feedback loops and for sort of a year-to-year -year view of how the budgeting process works and how the appropriations process works so that a taxpayer could essentially find a project that maybe is happening in their town or, or however they come across it and can essentially plug into the process and say, what has this received in the past? What are the contracts that have been let on, 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 you know, to get it completed? And you know, I think the way often the way that Congress does its uh, its it, the process, they kind of pretend year to year that that whatever's happening this year is unrelated to what has happened in the past, and that's clearly not the case. There are obviously projects that get funded uh, in a year to year process, and, and all of that information is is available. It's just not available in a way that allows you to see that very see that process very easily. So. Uh, that's something that, that, that we would love to see happen. Um, so the third uh, data practice is machine discoverability. This is the, the idea that, that, that you can go on the internet and see much of this data. And of course, this has run uh, a, a gamut. I, if folks remember back when the, uh, they started requiring that members submit letters for their earmarks or earmark requests, 
the only way some communities were letting you see that, and if you went into the office and you could open a binder and literally dig through a binder of earmark requests, you couldn't photocopy them, you couldn't take them out, and so that was it. That was it was transparent in some sense, but very very limited, uh, very limited transparency. And then, uh, or if you think of something like the personal financial disclosures, which perhaps some folks in here have to submit, but which were only available if you we went to like the basement of of of, uh, of a house office building, and now that's that is available online, but again limited because it's in paper format and they're PDFs of, of what's in paper format instead of requiring that be filed digitally, for example. So. Uh, I think there's improvements being made in that regard. Certainly a lot more that can be done. Um, and one thing to point out is that it's not enough just to put that data online. Often uh, what will happen is information that's available in one place, if you go look at it, when they put it online, they sort of limit what they put up. And, and you know, again, we're not talking about a complete data set at that point. We want to see kind of everything that, that you could see if you're in Washington and you can go to whatever office it is that's holding that piece of information. Uh, we want to see that same thing available online for everybody to, to see. Um, and then the last piece is machine readability, which in his paper, Jim says, is the heart of transparency. And to that I say amen, um, because Back in, the, back in the olden days, which was 2004, 2005, when we started doing the work of making these things transparent, man, I don't know how they did it, but they could take a PDF and make it so impossible to scan. It was, it was truly unbelievable. So that, that you, you had to literally enter everything by hand. I mean, that's, you know, I, I've often said, nobody's happier about the earmark moratorium than I am because I was the guy that was largely responsible for inputting a lot of that data. Well, it, it was, it stunk, let's put it that way. Um, so, and, and what happens then is we spent more time typing in data and creating the data set itself than we actually did analyzing the data. That's what we do, that's, that's, that's what we wanna be doing. We don't wanna be creating the data set, we wanna take the data set and tell, and tell taxpayers why it matters to them. And, and we, that was being lost to a certain extent because we were spending so much time actually creating the data set. So, uh, so you know, machine readability is, is at the center of that. Uh, and what really I think made us crazy is that we knew because these were computer printouts, that stuff exists somewhere in a computer. And yet here we are getting these like crazy PDFs that, anyway. Um, so I think in conclusion, I just wanna, wanna echo that this is a, an important pursuit. Transparency is a good thing. And this is not an academic pursuit. I mean, this is something that has real impact and has real benefit for, for taxpayers uh, and, and uh, really allows greater accessibility and greater perspective on the part of those who, who, whose money is being spent in this town. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's an important thing. So thanks for having me. Hi, um, I know I've been introduced. Uh, I'm Craig Jennings. I'm from OMB Watch. Uh, we're a good government group um, and interested in providing transparency in the government and oversight generally. Um, and as someone who believes um, that our public structures can enhance the lives of Americans, I think it's incredibly important that the uh, programs that are funded are done right. Um, and that there is oversight and that program performance continues to improve. And there's really only one way to do that, and that's to know what 
we're doing and what we're spending our money on. And we also have to be very careful um, about how we deploy our national resources and ensure that uh, waste fraud and abuse is at a minimum and that program spending is done effectively and efficiently because ultimately government programs can work. Uh, but we need to know a lot more about them to ensure that they continue to improve. And one of the things that I frequently hear a lot, especially in these halls um, and under the dome, is that we spend too much. And I don't know if that's really true. We spent uh, $3.6 trillion last year on a whole bevy of things that the federal government does. Um, and when I hear um, the phrase, we spend too much, in my head, I actually think, really? Do we really spend too much? Um, because I think that's a very important question to be asking, and it's very difficult to get the answer to that question. I mean, is it really too much to spend to ensure that every child eventually goes to college or that they have basic health care and nutrition, that they're protected from violence, and that they always have a safe place to come home to? Is $3.6 trillion too much to be spending on that? I don't know. I would love to have that debate, and I think we should have that debate, but until we actually have access to numbers and programs and program performance data, we're not going to be able to have that debate. We're not going to be able to answer that question, and I'd love to. Um, these are simple questions, and with some Googling, uh, some perusal of uh, some federal websites, of outside government websites, it's possible to come up to uh, the answers to some of those questions, but the fact is is that there really isn't um, one single authoritative source I can go and say, what are we spending on childhood nutrition? Here it is. What are the programs? Uh, what were they authorized by? What, how much are we spending on them? Who's getting the money? Are those people getting money from other sources? Are they getting them from other contracts? Uh, have they been lobbying? Do they do campaign contributions? All that stuff is a uh, drudgery uh, to go through all that stuff and to piece it all together and if we were to digitize federal spending information um, in a way that that uh, Jim has modeled here we would get much much closer to answering those very important questions and then we can say are we spending too much um, it, one one report one GAO report that came out uh, this year, which I, I think is a pretty good report, opportunities to reduce potential duplication in government programs, save tax dollars, and enhance revenues, uh, was the focus of a lot of attention, um, and rightly so. Um, and I should note that uh, even though Congress had hearings on this to find out if uh, that's exactly uh, the case or what's going on here, it was Congress, after all, that authorized all these duplicative and wasteful programs. But, um, and, and I think some of the reason for that is, of course, the usual suspects of the lobbying, the politics, the, the log rolling, the what have you, all for better, for worse, whatever it is. But um, crucially, perhaps, is the fact that there is not a comprehensive list of stuff we do that's impossible to find. And if Congress had access to that list, and if Congress could have other parties or the federal agencies slice and dice the data to say, childhood nutrition, Here's everything we do for childhood nutrition. Uh, it's funded by uh, three different committees of jurisdiction. Uh, we spent this much. Here's the six programs that deal with childhood nutrition. Uh, here's the kids that were helped by childhood nutrition last year. Um, you know, 400,000 kids were helped by this program. Uh, they were actually healthier with this program than without. All that data should be there and available, but it's not. Um, and again, moving toward a more digital world, 
we could, uh, we could move into answering some of those questions and not have to have the GAO produce very thick reports on information about duplicative, overlapping, and wasteful programs. Um, so uh, the second thing is that for anyone interested in knowing about these programs, like I said, it's a chore to go through and bring all this data together, and that really shouldn't have to be. Uh, the, the data is probably out there some way in some format, um, but it's not accessible, it's not available, it's not discoverable. Uh, a lot of this stuff, especially uh, in Congress, uh, like the appropriations tables that get produced um, on the appropriations subcommittee's websites are all in PDFs. It's nice, um, but if we, you know, if we were living in a digital world, um, I could just, you know, pull that out, match it up with some program performance data, match it up with what the agencies are saying, um, and we'd have a much better picture of what we do. Uh, that $3.6 trillion figure that I just mentioned came from a Treasury website and their um, financial management stuff and comes from their monthly Treasury reports. Um, but to understand where that money is going, I went over to USA Spending to find out that of that, $1.9 trillion was going to parties outside of the government. And of that $1.9 trillion, $1 trillion is going to contracts and grants. $1 trillion is going to people and companies outside of the federal government. We're paying people outside the federal government to do stuff on behalf of the federal government. Who are these people? What are they doing with the money? Uh, we, we don't really know that. USA Spending only gives us the obligation data. It says, well, we promise these people that we're going to pay them that much. But we don't have access to knowing uh, Acme Corporation got a check for $500,000 on this date to do this project. Um, so it's really difficult, actually, to know what we're actually, actually spending and who's actually, actually getting the dollars. Um, so we're, we're at a point now where the technology is there. Uh, this isn't, you know, we, we have people living in space, and yet we can't know what everything the federal government is doing on one page. It, it's not a difficult question, again, it's just that we just need to bring it all together, and I think that's entirely possible. So the technology is here, and we're waiting for the policy to catch up. And we're waiting for Congress, we're waiting for the administration to come together to some understanding about how we can make this stuff more accessible to people like me and to people like Jim um, and to people uh, that are interested in, in what the federal government is up to. So um, without being too long, let me briefly run through what, what I think are six critical elements to federal spending transparency um, that I think if... We, if, if we were to digitize federal spending information, we could bring it together and really have a good grasp of what's going on. Um, the first thing, and I kind of alluded to it, is that we need to see the, the big picture. We need to see the dollars that get spent from cradle to grave. That is from agency request through uh, appropriations and authorization uh, to the, the um, presidents or to the agencies expending that money, to the checks that get written, and then to what happened to that money, the performance data. How many children were helped with the um, childhood nutrition program that Congress uh, authorized last year? We need to see that one program go all the way through the start. We can't do that. We don't even know what those programs are right now without a whole bunch of work, but I should be able to uh, barcode a, a dollar and see that it started here, it originated here, and it ended up over here with uh, a thousand kids uh, having lunches uh, at school. We can't see that. The second thing is um, we need high-quality, authoritative data. It is a mishmash out there right now, and I, as I just alluded to, Treasury 
holds the nation's checkbook. I think that is the last word in spending. That's what we actually spent. That was the check that went out the door to somebody that actually received money. Uh, we don't have access to that right now. Instead, what we have access to is USA Spending, which is, again, like I said, uh, we promise to pay these people this. Sometimes that actually goes through. Sometimes it doesn't. If you look at USA Spending right now, uh, we were, um, in 2011, our loan obligations were uh, negative uh, some $70 billion, I think. I don't know why it's like that, but, you know, such as it is, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what's going on without actually looking at the nation's checkbook. Uh, thirdly, there needs to be some sort of way to bring this all together so that, um, so that a corporation, Acme Inc., uh, that received money for this program can be identified as the same Acme Inc. that received money for this program or that received money for this program three years in a row on a no-big contract or that this Acme Inc. is the same Acme Inc. that's also donating money to this congressman over here or is lobbying the executive branch for programs over here. Um, and and we should be able to know that the Acme Inc. that appears in six different databases throughout the government, including on the EPA's toxic release inventory, that it's the same Acme Inc. We can't do that right now. And it's incredibly important that we're able to draw unique entities that interact with the federal government together to know that it's one entity. Um, fourth, uh, as I mentioned, you know, people get checks from the federal government. Uh, oftentimes this happens with uh, contracts and grants. Uh, they re-grant them or subcontract them. And right now we can see that first tier of subcontracts. So for instance, Acme Inc. gets a check. They give it, uh, they subcontract out to ABC Corporation. We can see that. But ABC Corporation then might re-grant or subcontract out that money. And that might not seem as important right now, but when you consider that uh, in a lot of systems, uh, states are considered the prime recipient. Uh, and then cities maybe become the subrecipient. What we don't know is that the mayor's brother-in-law is receiving uh, federal funds because he's the second tier of subrecipient. And that's the kind of things that we'd like to see. So if we could get through every step along that spending chain, uh, we should be able to see that. Um, otherwise, we just don't really have an idea where the money is ending up. Uh, fifth, uh, we need to see full contract text online. Just put it up. It needs to be filled out electronically. It needs to be made available to the public because without knowing exactly what the federal government has contracted with the private entity to do, we don't know if the government is getting uh, what they're supposed to. Uh, for example, the, the Smartronics, con the, the contract to build recovery.gov went to Smartronics, Inc., which is a company in Maryland. It was for some $19 million. And when that was made public, everybody was really squawking, not squawking, but, you know, there was a lot of concern. $19 million all for a for a website, oh, that's, that's way too much money. But I don't know how they can make that claim because they don't know what was in that contract. Uh, we don't know if that was a, 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 you know, um, a contract to, to build out um, a website that could handle a million users, and so they're actually going to go out and buy the hardware to do that. Was hardware involved in that contract? How many people are doing it? How long are they going to take? What all is involved? So I know it's just a website. But what about all the guts to connect the website to the recipient reports that are going to be coming in? That system's not built yet. Does that, does that contract cover it? We don't know. The contract was released, heavily redacted, of course. Um, but, it, but without knowing that, the first instinct is to say, oh, something's wrong here. But then there's a whole bunch of other contracts, I think, that, that do get signed that uh, go under the wire and uh, very plain language, very simple, nondescript, and yet a few million dollars goes to a company to do you know, activity, make things better. 
who knows. Um, and lastly, um, we're, we're talking in terms of spending here, um, but ultimately what we're trying to do when we spend money is um, to make things better. And we need to know that what we're doing with federal funds is actually making things better, and that's the performance data. So like I keep alluding to some ambiguous childhood uh, nutrition program, um, but things like that, healthcare, um, even uh, let's talk about NOAA um, and launching weather satellites, or um, the EPA, um, or food inspection, or any of the thousands of programs that the government uh, uh, undergoes and conducts each year, are they actually delivering what they said they should be deliver? Because that's the point of understanding what spending is all about. Because we're spending money to do things. Are we actually doing those things? Are we actually improving people's lives? And when we start making that connection, that's really the oversight. And that's really how we make things a more efficient and better government. So, that's it. <clears throat>